Well, welcome to Crossroads. Good to see you this morning as we gather together to uh, worship our Lord and Savior Jesus uh, in this place, lifting our voices, turning to his word. If you are new with us today, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church, and I'm glad that you are uh, here today. Um, In fact, uh, if you are new or maybe if we just haven't met, I'd love the chance to uh, meet you in person. Uh, I offered this out at 8 o'clock, our 8.30 service. I said, you know, usually I'm just wandering in the lobby, and I don't think that, like, I'm that, like, you know, scary of a guy. So if you just come up and talk to me, I'll probably talk to you back. And uh, I was almost late because I was talking to so many people. And so if we haven't had the chance to meet, love to get to talk to you. But today we are in um, our fourth week of this series that we're doing called Christianity for the Curious, the Cautious, and the Confused. And what we're doing in this series is really trying to lift the religious fog uh, that comes with Christianity so that we can see Christianity as it actually is. That today you may be walking in here today and you may be walking in curious or or maybe you're entering in a little bit cautious, or maybe you have a ton of questions because you're just confused about Christianity. We want you to know that you're welcomed in this place to bring those questions, those cautions, that curiosity here. And what we want to do really over the course of this series is to talk about the questions and to answer some of the items and the issues that are around Christianity so that you can make an informed decision of what it looks like to follow Jesus, so that you can make that in your own life, so that you can see Jesus as he actually is. And so through the course of this series, what we've been doing is just going through some of the major topics. And if you've been with us, these will be familiar. If you're new with us, just where we've been and where we're going. But week one, uh, we really had a conversation of why Jesus came. And what we discovered that day is while a lot of us could probably name some really good reasons of why Jesus came to this earth, that when we open up the gospels and actually look, look at what Jesus has to say, what we find is that Jesus gives us a pretty specific answer. That he said that I came into this world so that I might bear witness to the truth. In other words, that you and I might know truth. That the reason that Jesus came into this world was to be the champion of truth, and that really that is the foundation, the bedrock of which everything else is built in Christianity. And then in week two, we looked at what Christianity is all about. And we found out that the truth of the reality of Jesus coming into this world is so that people could experience God and could experience this beautiful hope in their everyday lives. That Jesus came and lived, died, ultimately he was resurrected so that you and I, so that we would, that we could have the opportunity to come alive or the way that the Bible uses is to, is to flourish physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that we would flourish in our lives. And then last week, we looked at the issue of why Christians believe the Bible is the source of truth. And we walked through that, and for Christians, the answer is pretty simple, we said. The reason that we believe that the Bible is the source of truth is because Jesus did. And we walked through last week, and we saw how not only, as Jesus walked on this world, did he, did he affirm the Old Testament as the Word of God, but he also lived as if he believed it. He lived as if it was actually true. And then we saw as he turned the page to the New Testament that he actually commissions these guys called the apostles to begin writing and working in concert with the Holy Spirit, with God, in order to put out scriptures for the New Testaments of which we have today. That for us as believers, that the reason that we believe that the Bible is the source of truth is very simple. It all revolves around Jesus, simply because Jesus did. Now today, we're going to turn the corner a little bit, and we're going to begin today to talk about the nature and character of God. 
And then next week, we're going to talk about the nature and character of man. I invite you back. Pastor Chris is going to walk through that. And then we're going to wrap all of this up with um, the Christian life and what the Christian life is really all about. And so today... As we jump into it, what I, want to, what I want to do is I want to invite you into what I believe, in my opinion, is the most important journey that we're going to take during this series. That today I'm going to invite you to gaze upon the face of God. A.W. Tozer, one of my most favorite writers, writes these words. He says, whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And so the question that we're going to look at today is who is God? Who is God? Now, how do we even begin to ponder such a question like that? I mean, in some ways, it would be easier for us to, um, to think through and to understand the concept of infinity, wouldn't it? I mean, infinity is this kind of this mind-blowing reality in our, in our worlds, that there's no top, there's no bottom, there's no sides, that you can walk as far as your legs will take you and run direction, and you'll be no closer to the end than you were when you first started, because when it comes to infinity, there is no end, nor there is there really a beginning. Like, like, how do you make sense of any of that? And so today, we're going to attempt to just scratch the surface of this question by laying the groundwork of who God is. And I just want you to know that it won't be everything there is to know about God. This is, this is a lifetime endeavor. And in many ways, I wish that this was really the topic that we could start with, the topic that we could first cover, to just be able to sit in awe, to gaze upon the glory of God. But we could not. See, in our cultural moment, we can't start with this question. We first have to establish why Jesus came. We have to understand what Christianity is all about. We have to, to get to the point where we see the Bible as the source of truth. And then and only then can we begin to answer this question of who is God? So today, I invite you to stand on what will seem like the edge of infinity as we begin to ponder this question together. Where do we begin? Well, if you were here last week, we looked at a scene in Jesus' life where he was in this moment of need. He was wandering through the desert. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was being attacked by the enemy. You remember all this going down. And as he's going through this in, his, in, his, in this moment of need, he actually turns to a very specific place in the Bible. Anybody remember where he turned? Don't worry. Not on the learner. On the teacher. All right. He turned to the book of Deuteronomy. He turned to the book of Deuteronomy. That's a good place for us to begin. Moses, the writer of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, he writes these words. He says, the th secret things belong to the, uh, to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So let me show you, let me demonstrate to you what Moses is saying. I want everybody in the room and online, I want you to take your hand and I want you to put it in front of your face like this. And I want you to take your index finger and your thumb and I want you to make a circle and I want you to look through this circle for a moment. 
that as you look through this circle, this is what we know about God. This is everything that has been revealed to us about God, that everything that's contained in this circle is what we know about God. It's for us, it's for our children, and it's for us forever. Now, as the circle's in front of your face, I want you to look around the room that you're sitting in. Look at the people around you, the lights, the walls, right? Wherever you're at, just look all around your circle. That is just the very beginning of everything that the human mind cannot conceptually get when it comes to God. Just the very beginning. Everything in the circle is what we know and what God has revealed to us. Everything outside the circle is just the beginning of that we don't even have the capacity to understand about God. It's breathtaking, isn't it? And yet here's the good news. That at least according to Moses, what God has revealed to us when we look upon the circle is not, e- not, not just merely enough, but actually more than enough for us to, able be, to be able to absorb in our lifetime. Another way of saying that is like this, that what has been revealed about God is enough for us to cultivate a dynamic, meaningful, and satisfying relationship with God. This is that God is knowable, that we can know him. And at the very same time, there is so much about God that is simply beyond our human comprehension. We call this his transcendence. That God is both knowable and completely transcendent. See, the only reason that we can even begin to answer the question that we have today is because for some amazing reason, God decided to reveal himself to us. And what he reveals allows us to know him. Now, when we're talking about knowing of God, we're not talking about some kind of clinical knowledge of God. We're talking about the real reality that you can have relationship with him, that you and I can have relationship with God. It's what Jesus actually prayed for in his prayer in John chapter 17. This is, how he, this is how the story goes. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He begins this prayer, and here's what he's praying. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, that's over all of humanity. Since you have given him authority over all of humanity to give eternal life to all whom you have given And this is eternal life. In case you ever wondered, if you ever confused, if you were ever curious about what this whole idea of eternal life is, Jesus is about to answer it for us. He says this, this is eternal life, that they know you. That we, that you, that me, that we would know God. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom whom you have sent into this world. That Jesus in this prayer binds together eternal life with this knowing God. And this word knowing here that Jesus uses in everyday common Greek was the same word that husbands would use of knowing their wives intimately. It was that kind of knowledge. It wasn't just this like discrete knowledge, like I know that there's a God somewhere out there. No, 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 no. This was this, that this knowledge was social. It was relational. It was intimate that we might know God like that. Now, this is totally amazing when you think about the absolute truth of this reality, that God has revealed himself in such intimate ways to us as one who thinks and reasons as one who plans out and and loves and rejoices and celebrates 
and experiences anger and compassion. I mean, let me just show you a few verses of, of this kind of type of intimate knowledge that God reveals to us. In Isaiah, he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. In Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you. Isaiah, come now and, and let us reason together, God says. My compassion grows warm and, and tender out of the prophet Hosea. In Zephaniah, the, the Lord will rejoice over you. He will rejoice over you with, with gladness. In the book of Numbers, the, the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. I mean, this intimate knowledge of God is revealed to us, is revealed to us, and it's, and it's so amazing because God is not impersonable. He's not impersonal. He's, he's not substance. He's not this like this mere force. He's not this like gas or, you know, this like this element. He's not just influence. That God is a person. He is, he is personal. From him comes personhood. It's why we'll see next week when Pastor Chris is here and we talk about the nature and character of humanity, why in all of creation, why humans are made uh, unique, because we are made in the image of God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are created as a person, as God is person. Now, this is intimate knowledge of God. And in this intimate knowledge of God, what is revealed to us is even deeper when we come to realize that God has actually given us his name. Now, we know that names mean something, don't we? That even when science, when science looks at just your brain, that when somebody says your name, your brain lights up with excitement and joy and, and, and all of this kind of stuff's going on in your brain when you hear your name, because name is identity, isn't it? To hear your name means that you're known. So we have the story of, of names and realizing the significance of of names, that names mean something. We walk through the Bible and, and the Bible points this out so clearly to us. We can look at someone like John, we call him John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was born later in life to his parents and so his parents looked down upon him and not down like, you know, bad down, but looked at him as he was born and said, you know, God is so gracious to us, we're gonna name you John. That's what the word John means. In the Old Testament, we have this guy named Jacob. Jacob was a bit of a deceiver, he was a supplanter, that's actually what his name meant. He has this encounter with God, and out of that encounter, God changes his name to Israel, which means strives with God. Names mean something. We go back to the New Testament, and we see that one of the disciples of Jesus, one of his apostles, one of his boys, that everybody knows him as Simon, but he has this unique moment with Jesus, and out of this unique moment, Jesus changes his name from Simon, which means to hear, to Peter, which means the rock. We have the the apostle, right, or maybe the great persecutor before he was the apostle, the great persecutor of the church, his name was Saul, which meant demanded. He has this encounter with Jesus on the road of Damascus, and nobody calls him Saul anymore. Everybody calls him Paul, which means little one. God's humor is so beautiful there, isn't it? We have the most significant name that we find in all of the Bible, and you shall name him Jesus, which means Savior. Names mean something. Names mean something in the scriptures. This knowable God reveals his name to us. 
One day Moses, the great prophet of Israel, the one who wrote Deuteronomy, that he's literally running from all of his people's problems. And as he's running through the wilderness, he comes upon God in this amazing kind of remarkable encounter where God shows himself in this burning bush. And all of a sudden this bush is on fire, but the bush isn't being consumed. And, and all of a sudden this voice of God comes out of the bush. Like it's this amazing story. You can read about it in Exodus 2 and 3. But in this moment, it stops Moses in his tracks. And Moses realizes that he's talking to God and he has all these questions about who this God is. And eventually he gets to the question oh, to this God. He says, what, what is your name? Like, what should I call you? And God simply responds by saying Yahweh, which means I am. The way that they would write it in Hebrew is like this, Y-H-W-H. In English, we say Jehovah. If you're reading the Bibles, oftentimes you'll see it translated as Lord in all caps. It all means the same thing, I am. Over 6,000 times, God chooses to reveal himself this way in our Old Testaments. The name Jehovah was in part to communicate that God is someone who is everything his people need. That there's nothing that he lacks. I am. I am. And as we look through the Old Testament and see, God would oftentimes remind his people Israel that in their time of need, when they were fearful, when they were distressed, when they lacked, God would remind them by saying that I am Jehovah Barah. I am the creator. When you're anxious and worried, remember that I am the one who created all of this. That I am Jehovah Shammah. I am ever present. When you're lonely, know that I am there with you. Jehovah Raha, I'm the shepherd. You're lost and wandering through this life, I'm the one who comes to guide. Jehovah Rapha, that I'm the one who heals your wounds, your burdens, they're overburdened to you. That I'm the one who comes and heals your soul. Jehovah Jireh, that I am your provider. You're in need, I'm the one who gives. Jehovah Shalom, that I am your peace. In the midst of the storm, I am your calm. Names mean something. When God says, this is my name, I am, it means something. For all that Israel needed, for, for all that they lacked, forever that they could imagine that they would be, they had God, the great I am. And my prayer is that if you gain nothing else from this sermon series, that you would stand in awe of the enormity of what God has revealed himself to you by simply giving us his name. How intimate and personal that is, that you would long for that kind of knowledge of God. In this reveal, God chooses to show himself, the perfect image of himself, the radiance of his glory, the way the writer of Hebrews says it, that not only is he the radiance of his glory, but he's actually the exact imprint of his nature. That this image is, is so complete with all that God is that the Bible speaks as this image as the second person of God. The second person of God is, is actually oftentimes referred into our Bibles as the son of God. Not because there's any like biological way that he's the son. It's not like God came down and had sex with Mary and they had a baby. Not that kind of understanding. That the son is a son to indicate that they have the same divine nature. They're both personal. Love reigns between them. The Bible speaks of God the father loving God the son. 
And God the Son loving God the Father. And then the Bible indicates that there's a, there's a third person in this that we call the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves God the Father and God the Son as the three of them love together. And the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to help us, the people, love God the Father and God the Son and submit to them what the Bible calls this is the Trinity. That God has chosen to reveal himself in the Trinity, this, this, this concept where there's one God, not three, but this one God is in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. It's like we're swimming in infinity now, right? Like, like how do our minds even comprehend this as we look upon and gaze upon the face of God? And we're not even at the best part yet. See, the most amazing thing about this noble, intimate God is that through his justice and his mercy, he draws up this play from way back, from beginning of eternity, so that sinners like you and me could be forgiven and adopted into his eternal family. And this isn't God just like begrudgingly, you know, doing this. This is actually an outflow of his nature. See, in John 1, 1, we have it said like this, that in the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John says, in the beginning there's this, this word, and the word is, is with God, and not only is he with God, but he's actually God. And the word becomes flesh, becomes human, becomes humanity, and dwelt among us. And through this one who is dwelling among us, who is the word, who is with God and God, that we have seen God's glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and, here's our word, truth. There's a switch that happens here in the language in this verse. There's a category that flips from word to son. And John goes, I just want to be clear here. I want you to understand that the word is the eternal son. The word that was with God and is God is the son of God. He has become God-man. We call him Jesus. That the son of God has always been God and is now also man. That God takes on human flesh. We call this the incarnation. And the question, the question is why would this knowable God who has already made himself known through nature, through the Bible, make himself known in this way? Why would he take on human flesh? And the answer is, is because all of humanity, all the peoples of the worlds have failed to worship and to love and to obey God as they ought. And so what happens when the creatures rebel against the creator? What happens when the creatures rebel against the one who created them? Well, logically speaking, the creator has all the right in the world, all of the right in the world to sequester them to hell because of their rebellion and their failures. But in the fullness of God's love, in the fullness of this amazing God's love, he planned a way from the beginning, from way before the beginning, of the, when even the foundations of the world were laid, not only in his justice, but also in his mercy, get this, that God invades the creation. That God invades the creation. 
And in doing so, he comes to rescue his creatures who deserve punishment, who deserve his punishment. But instead, he takes on his own wrath by his own mercy. That the Son of God becomes human and is punished in our place. That here's the way the prophet Isaiah would say it in the Old Testament in the Jewish scriptures. He would say it like this. But he, this God-man, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. That every single one of us, we've turned, we've turned, everyone to his own way. That we've turned away from God, we've rebelled against God, we've refused to love God, we have refused to worship God the way that we ought. That all of us have turned away. And the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, has laid on the God-man the iniquities, the sins of us all. In the New Testament, John, the way that he says it is in the famous verses of John 3, 16, for God, oh, he so loved this world that he sent his, his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but actually experience eternal life. What is eternal life again? Jesus says that you would know God and know Jesus Christ, the one whom he sends. See, whoever believes, whoever trusts, whoever receives, whoever treasures Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life, that Jesus becomes their substitute, bears God's punishment, provides God's righteousness, and in doing so, secures relationship with God forever and ever. Understanding and believing that God is who he says he is is what drives our human experience. It's why Jesus came into this world and asked questions like this, why are you so worried? Like, why are you so ridden with anxiety? Why do you fear? Is what, is, what are the things in front of you that cause you not to believe that God is who he says he is? Jesus says, you want contentment in this world? You want peace? He goes, you're not gonna find it the way us humans typically tend to look for it. You're not gonna find it in your career. You're not gonna find it in money. You're not gonna find it drowning your, 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 your life away in alcohol or, or you know, getting high on drugs or, or you know, sleeping with everybody you can. You're not gonna find contentment and peace that way. He says the only way is to understand, to believe, to know that God is who he says he is. So back to our question, who is God? He's both transcendent and knowable. He's completely mysterious and at the very same time relational. He's personal, he's the great I am. He's given us his name, Yahweh. He's the Father, the Spirit, the Son, the Son who became man to rescue undeserving people like you and me. In his justice and his mercy, he devised a way through all of eternity so that you and I, sinners like me, could be forgiven, adopted into his family, and that as I live out my life in the joy of who he is, that I show the whole world his glory, his glory. See, the secret things, they belong to the Lord. But God has revealed himself for you, for me, for our children, forever. See, what has been revealed to us through nature, through the Bible, 
through the personhood and character of Jesus is enough for us to know that we need to be and can be reconciled with God forever, forever. See, when it comes to who is God, it is the most important thing that any single one of us can think of in this world. And so what I want to do for a moment, just in a couple of moments of silence, is I want you to close your eyes and I want you for a moment just to gaze upon the glory of God. Just to sit in awe of who he is, what he has done, what he has accomplished. Just sit in awe of your God. Father, you are, you are so amazing that today as we just look upon you, as we focus our eyes upon you, as we gaze at your glory, we see how unreachable you are and at the same time how knowable you've made yourself to be that we don't have to sit and wonder about who you are, that we, that we know you in intimate ways, that you're, you're personal. You've given us your name. You've, you've revealed yourself in ways that, that blow our mind, that you've invaded this world so that we might see the perfect imprint of who you are. You went to the cross to die for our sins. You rose again so that we would have life and have it abundantly. I'm reminded of the psalm where the writer writes, who are we that you are even mindful of us? That you created us a little lower than the angels, but you have such a love for us that you've revealed yourself and you've saved us. Oh God, who are we? Father, I pray today that we would just be in awe of you. That our lives would just fill for, with gratitude as we understand more deeply what, what Jesus accomplished in this world. That we would not fight the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to the love that you call us into. Father, I pray today, Lord, for those who, Lord, maybe came in here curious about who you are, who are a bit cautious because of the way that, that the church has portrayed you to be, maybe confused, and if, you, if you're even knowable. God, I pray that you would speak to their souls. And Lord, that as we, Lord, dump out our sins at the cross, that we'd know that it's there, that you died for those sins. Three days later, you rose, showing us that you are an amazing, amazing God. Lord, we pray that um, you would continue to show ourselves, not just in this moment, 
but Lord, through our day and our week to come. Lord, just blow us away with your beauty and your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We come together to celebrate communion. And in doing so, we remember the words of Isaiah 55, where we're reminded that Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, came into this world, invaded this world, and that on the cross, it was our iniquities, our sins that crushed him, that, that broke his body. That on the cross, our sins were, were paid for, and, and by his blood, we were forgiven. And so today, we celebrate that amazing love, that grace, that mercy, the justice of God poured out so that we might have life. And as a church body, we rest in the truth that this cup is our salvation. This is the forgiveness of our sins. Today, if God is moving in your spirit, if he's whispering to you, I would encourage you, if you're ready to take a next step, whether that looks like talking to someone about Jesus or or completely submitting your life to him, we'd just like you to text the word Jesus to our text line, 720-513-1933. If you're in the house today and you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. You can make your way over to the banner online. You can simply click the button. But in doing so, we consider it a privilege to come alongside you as together we gaze at the face of God as we communicate with him in prayer. I'm gonna invite you in house to go ahead and stand as we sing to the good, our good and great God.